Hello and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast shining a light on developers' lives from all over the world. My name is Tim Bourguignon, and today I receive Saron Yitbarek. Saron is the CEO and founder of CodeNewbie, the most supportive community of programmers and people learning to code. She's also a developer, of course, and a speaker and the host of multiple podcasts, among which the Base CS podcast, the Common Line Heroes, and of course, the podcast through, um, through which I first heard about you, the Code Newbie podcast. But I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. Saron, welcome to Dev Journey. Thanks so much for having me. Been a long time in the making uh, having you here, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm thrilled that it's finally happening. Would you mind telling us where your adventure in the coding world started? Sure. It started about maybe eight years ago, six to eight years ago, when I was working uh, at Discover Magazine, which is a science magazine in New York, based in New York City. And during my time there, I was reading the Steve Jobs book. And this is the Walter Isaacson book. Uh, and it was an amazing book, very long read, very educational, very interesting. And that was really the first time that I'd been introduced to technology in a way that I felt was accessible to me, because Steve Jobs was all about design and making a great user experience and art and all the things that I really liked and I could relate to. And so I thought, huh, maybe there's a place for me in this world of technology. So after that, I decided to look into and investigate a bunch of startups. So I read a ton about the startup world and about tech. And I reached out to a bunch of different startup CEOs in New York City. And I had a coffee and one of those coffees turned into a internship. And then that internship turned into a job. So um, yeah, that's how it got started for me was being really curious and reading a book. And now we're here. Awesome. What was your background at that time? What, were you already into kind of tech or what, what are you doing? At the time that I read the book? Yes. Yeah. So at that point, I was in journalism. So I was working as a fact checker at Discover Magazine. And how did you make the jump into programming? Was it was it easy? Did you take some class? How, how, how does it look like? Yeah, it was not easy. <laughs> it was definitely not easy. <laughs> um, so I worked at a, a few different startups. And when I was there, I realized that the most important people on the team were the engineers. The engineers were the rock stars. They were the core part of the team. They were definitely, you know, if anything was going to happen to the, to the employees, they were the last to be touched because they were just so integral. They were so, so important. And I felt like if I didn't become an engineer, if I didn't learn how to code, that I was going to be expendable. And so for my own career sake, I said, you know what, I think it's time for me to invest in myself to take a little break and learn to code. So I quit my job at a startup. And then I spent the next three months learning by myself. And then I enrolled into a boot camp and then did the boot camp for about three months. So I spent a total of six months learning how to code. Uh, and that was definitely not easy. I think learning to code for me was very, very difficult. I think, you know, I think it's still hard. Um, it's definitely the hardest thing I've ever had to learn, but it's totally worth it. Okay, let's let's unroll that a little bit. So you said you spent three months learning on your own. What what, what did you do? How did you did you get in in there? Sure. So Flatiron has Flatiron is a boot camp in New York City, actually in a bunch of different places, and they're online as well. They had a pre work, and so before you get accepted into the boot camp, you're supposed to do a hundred hours worth of learning on your own. And so it was this curriculum made of these free and really cheap online resources. So it was a combination of Code Academy, Treehouse, Code School, a bunch of other online things. 
And so I basically just went through that curriculum and I just walked through every single part. I think I did the curriculum twice, actually, because the first time was, you know, my first run through. And then the second time I got to really absorb the information. Um, so that's what I spent the three months doing. Awesome. And when did you realize during those three months that that it was something for you? After the end of the first month. So I gave myself one month to dedicate to this thing. And then if I liked it, I was going to continue. So I had 30 days. And in the 30 days, it was very painful. <laughs> um, you know, it hurt a bunch of times. But when things did work, it felt so, so good. And so that, you know, that high of it really working and being really excited about it is what pushed me through. And so at the end of the first month, I said, okay, I think this is something that I want to invest more in. And I think this is something I want to do. That's so great. That's a nice story. And so after that, you enrolled into this uh, bootcamp from Flatiron, right? Mm -hmm, correct. And so how was the uh, the jump between this, this self-learning and then this um, constructed curriculum, this three-month curriculum? How, yeah. how was the change? It was a very, very big change. I think the biggest benefit of going into a boot camp for me was having a community of people. Um, it was very lonely learning how to code just in my apartment by myself and being surrounded by, you know, 44 other people who were just as excited as me and who were also just as scared <laughs> as I was, was hugely, hugely beneficial. It was also really helpful to have, um, someone tell you what is important to learn. I think when I was learning on my own, I wasn't sure how long I should um, stay in one subject and one topic. I wasn't sure when was a good time to move on. So it was a lot of kind of, you know, it was a lot of trial and error, but not really knowing when the error was happening, if that makes sense. And in a boot camp, it was much easier to have a teacher say, okay, we're going to spend one day on this, then we're going to move on. And to have them say, okay, if you know how to do this project, then you are comfortable with this topic. Now let's go do something else. So just having someone guide you through the process was one of the most helpful parts and one of the biggest differences between learning on my own and getting to learn as part of a school. You said uh, being part of a community. Um, was it explicitly part of the curriculum to build a community between the students and maybe with the teachers as well? I don't know if it was officially part of the curriculum, but there was a ton of group work. So through group work, yes, there was a lot of built-in community opportunities. I think the way that it was organized I want to say almost, I want to say almost every day there was some type of collaboration built in, whether it was a group project or whether it was working on your labs, but it was kind of assumed that you were going to pair up with people and work together on things. And that was really, really valuable to be able to, you know, sit next to someone and just go through things, pair, um, all that was super helpful. Mm -hmm. And how did that um, influence the start of your career after that or your, your new career as a, as a developer after that? Yeah, it was hugely influential because I got a job from that school. Um, so one of the last things that we did is a career fair where we had a bunch of different employers come out into the career fair and to, uh, it was kind of like a science fair. So we had our little station and we had our app on a computer and we walked people through the app. And it was a really great way for me to meet a bunch of people. And it was a really great way for me to, um, to get a bunch of interviews. I think by the end of the night, I had, uh, I had an interview already lined up. And then in the next couple of weeks, I had, I want to say it was six to seven interviews that were already booked. And so it was a really great opportunity for me to um, get myself in front of real companies and, you know, pitch myself. 
So I ended up working at New York Tech Meetup as a hacker in residence is what they called it. And it was basically an opportunity for me to um, to work. I think it was ended up being about seven months total on a defined project for a nonprofit organization in New York City. And so um, it was myself and another one of my uh, peers at the Flatiron School. And so we went together um, and it was just a really great experience being able to pair together and to be able to work with someone who I already had a, you know, a good relationship with because we went to the same program together. Um, but that's what I did. And I, I think it'd be very hard to get that opportunity without going through a boot camp. Mm-hmm. That's, that sounds awesome. Um, during this, this first job, did you have somebody um, with whom you could um, uh, exchange ideas. I mean, uh, not not the not this person that was with you in the boot camp, but some somebody with uh, with more experience um, that could expand your horizon. Sort of. So we had someone who was who was essentially a, a mentor of sorts, but it was very different from having someone on the team. Like that's one thing that I really wished we had. I wish we had a CTO or a senior developer who was there every single day who we could pair with and learn from. Um, we did have a mentor. We had someone who was available for like a few hours each week, but that's just so different, you know, from having someone uh, on the team. And so I think, you know, the, the benefits of that is that we learn a lot The downside is we learned it very inefficiently because <laughs> we just mm-hmm. tried a bunch of different things and uh, a lot of times it did not work. And I can look back on my code now and think, oh my God, what was I thinking? That was such a terrible <laughs> idea, um, you know? And so I, I wish that I didn't have to live through all of my mistakes. I wish there was someone to kind of guide us and prevent us from making those mistakes. But um, but yeah, so we had a mentor, but not a dedicated person. Do you think you could have found someone back then uh do you mean in terms of was there someone available or could the company pay for it um either or yeah um so me personally i don't know (laughs) um i I don't think that i i'm not you know part of recruitment so i don't know who we could have gotten but in terms of the company um it's a nonprofit, so there really wasn't a budget for it i think it was already um a big deal for them to hire us and to hire the two of us so i think that hiring a cto is probably outside of their budget Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably um, um, grasping too much in the future that, at that point, but was this one of the reasons for creating the Code Newbie afterward? Uh, well, one of the big reasons was actually my experience at the boot camp because, you know, there are a lot of benefits to doing a boot camp, but for me, the number one benefit was that community. And so when I went through the school, it, you know, it frustrated me that in order to have that community, you had to pay, you know, I paid $11,000 and went another three months without a paycheck. And that's very expensive for most people. That's just financially inaccessible. And so I wanted to create a space where you could find that community and you could be, you know, amongst your peers without having to pay such a hefty fee. And so that was my inspiration for starting CodeNewbie. Were you always the uh, the entrepreneur um, type of starting stuff like this? I don't... No, I don't think so. I think that it wasn't until I became, you know, a full-grown adult and was a few years out of college that I really entertained the idea of being an entrepreneur. But I think I was always a community organizer. Um, even when I was, uh, one thing that I did when I was a kid was when um, 9-11 happened in the U.S., I wanted to to do something to show um, support for, you know, what would happen and to show, um, you know, a little bit of patriotism. And so one thing that I did was I gathered everyone in our neighborhood, all the kids in the neighborhood, and we stood on the street and we had this huge sign that says honk for America. 
And we just stood there and we just like shouted at the cars to like honk for America in support of, you know, our nation. And it was such a, a, a small little way to just gather the community and get them together, get these kids together. Cause you know, we didn't have, we didn't have money. We didn't have much of a voice. We didn't have a say in anything, but we could stand on the street corner and like honk, you know, and get cars to honk. And it was such a memorable event for me. And I, I still think about it to this day of getting all these strangers and all these cars on the street who saw our sign and just honked and we would, you know, cheer them on. Um, and so I think I've always had that spirit of, you know, bringing people together for some reason for in one way or another and getting them to collaborate and to be stronger as a community. It sounds to be, uh, really one of your, of your, uh, strengths. I... Yeah. It's something I'm really proud of. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I jumped into the future. Let's go back to this, um, to this nonprofit. What happened after that? So after that, it's interesting. So my, um, my coworker and I, when we had very different takeaways from that experience, I ended that experience thinking, this was great, but I need to go back to learning. <laughs> you know, this to me, this experience really showed me how much I had uh, left to learn. It showed me a bunch of knowledge gaps that I that I had. Whereas my coworker took the experience and went, I can't wait for a full time job. I'm I'm ready. Um, so I think it was just fascinating that we had the exact same experience and had two very different um, outcomes. And so for me, I wanted to put myself back in a learning position. And so I applied for the Thoughtbot apprenticeship. Um, and I ended up getting that, which has been, which was an amazing opportunity to learn from senior developers to get to pair for a few months, uh, and to really just like buckle down and just focus on my learning. Mm -hmm. Would you mind explaining what the Thoughtbot apprenticeship is and how it, um, looks like? Sure. So Thoughtbot is a dev shop based, I think they're primarily based in the US. Um, and they started off doing primarily Ruby on Rails. Now they do a bunch of stuff. They do, they build really great, um, I think it's mostly web apps, web and mobile apps. And uh, they are a great, you know, a great part of the Ruby community and the Rails community in general. They support um, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, open source projects um, and they're awesome. So I, I heard about them, I think through the bootcamp, um, but they have an apprenticeship program where they pay you for three months and they level you up to the point where you can be a full-time developer at the company. And so um, the idea is you're apprenticing for a few months and then you're the expectation is that you get promoted to a full-time uh, full developer position. And so the first month you spend with a mentor, mostly shadowing, pairing a little bit. The second and third months, the second month uh, you focus more on like client work and a little bit of your own side project. And the third month is much more about client projects. Mm -hmm. That's that's really cool. That's a nice system. Mm -hmm. And did it work out for you? So you started Southbot yeah, afterward? Yeah, it was really great. Uh, sort of. So I got offered a position to start as a developer, but then I, um, I also got another opportunity from Microsoft to be a program manager for this program they were starting called Tech Jobs Academy. And it was a three month program for people who were unemployed and underemployed in New York City, but wanted to get into tech. And so that to me was just such a unique opportunity. And it fit so much with what I was doing with Code Newbie that I said to myself, Okay, I think this is kind of a once in a lifetime thing. I think I think I should take this one instead. So I could have started a Thoughtbot, uh, but instead I ended up going to Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And you said GoNewbie was already running at the time. Yeah, at that point we'd been doing Twitter chats every Wednesday. I think we started a podcast by that point that published every week. Um, so yeah, Codenby was a, a passion project of mine that I was doing just on the side, just for fun. Uh, and then eventually it ended up being my full time job. 
Mm-hmm. Would you mind explaining us how, how that uh, idea got born and, and how you started with CodeNewbie in the first place? Sure. So it started back at bootcamp when I was really frustrated by just how expensive it was to find a community. And at that point, um, you know, now I think a lot of other communities have popped up over the years. But back then, there really wasn't a place for newbies to go. And so um, in response to that, we started the Code to Be Twitter chats because Twitter chats are free. All you need is an Internet connection and a Twitter handle, and you can start talking to us. So we started um, doing Wednesday chats with the hashtag code newbie, and we would tweet out questions every week, and people would you know, join us on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern time, 6 p.m. Pacific time, and they would start tweeting at us, and they would join the conversation, and it was really just an excuse for people to talk to each other and people to meet each other. And so we did that for, um, I think, about a little under a year, and about a year into it, I said to myself, you know, Twitter chats are a really great way to start the conversation, but they're not a great way to uh, to dig into a topic or a person. And so I said to myself, we need to have a different tool for that. And because I used to work at NPR, I thought, oh, podcasting, interview-based shows are a really great way to dig into a specific topic or a specific guest. And so I started uh, doing the Coding to Be podcast and interviewing people, similar to this actually, interviewing people on their coding journey. And a couple months into doing that, I got an email from a business who said, hey, I'll give you 200 bucks to run an ad on your show. And I thought, holy crap, I can make money from this. (laughs) And that wasn't really, you know, my intention. I didn't even know that was an option. Um, And so that's when I started really thinking about it as a business. And I started saying, well, how do we make this sustainable? How do I, you know, eventually make this full time? Uh, You know, and how do I, how do I make it work as a business? That's a really cool story. And how, thank you. how, How did that evolve into a business? Sure. So it started with the Code and Be podcast, um, getting sponsors on that and having ads. Uh, and then we started doing Codeland, which is our annual conference. This is the third year, actually, that we're doing Codeland. So we get some revenue from there. And then we launched a new show called Basius Podcast, which we've been doing for a little over a year now. And that one, again, is, um, you know, ads, ad sponsored. So between those three, that's how we generate revenue. Mm-hmm. You said we? So you're you're not alone anymore. Yeah, I got a little team going. I'm super excited. We have a social media community manager and we have a producer. So I have someone who's focused exclusively on the community and who um, has actually been a big part of running our Twitter chats recently and a big part of, you know, posting and interacting with the community. And then we have a producer who's dedicated to nothing but doing the podcasts. Um, and it's been great finally having a team and not having to just do everything myself. Mm-hmm. And how was it to uh, to go from being alone on this project to having, or maybe, no, you were not alone for the beginning, right? Um, and then having a team working with you on that. It was a huge relief. Like, um, so, so they've been working now for a few weeks. So it's been pretty new. Um, but it's just a huge sigh of relief, you know, because when you're working by yourself, it's incredibly isolating. It's really lonely. And you also don't get a lot of feedback. You know, you put a lot of things out into the world. You hope that people like it. You hope they, you know, appreciate what you're doing, but you really don't know, right? Like when I publish a podcast, I, I hit publish and then I wait and cross my fingers, <laughs> you know, but there isn't, they, people don't like comment 
on podcasts. It's not really a thing. And there's very little feedback. So it's really nice to have a group of people and to say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Is this stupid? You know, does this make sense to you? And to have that feedback has been huge. And being able to, um, you know, one thing I realized about myself is I'm a better editor than I am a writer. I'm really good at critiquing and giving feedback, frankly, a lot more than I am at creating things myself. So I think by not having to create things on myself, I'm able to, um, I'm able to do, to do my job better. You know, I'm able to do my best work by being more of the editor and giving feedback and creating a better product as a result. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. I, I'm a really fan of the uh, draft zero. So whenever I have to work on something or work with someone, I just try to to make a very first draft, however awful it is, just to come to this mm-hmm. place where I can start editing. So I really relate to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. That, that's awesome. But I, I would have expected yeah. if if I were to uh, to make this podcast more of a business, um, I would fear losing my baby. I think. That would be something something that that, that would be on my mind, um, uh, objectively or subjectively. Yeah. Do, do, you, yeah. do you see what I mean? Yeah, I totally see what you mean. I don't feel that way at all. I am totally fine with other people playing with my baby. Um, <laughs> I don't have those concerns because to me, if I have to do everything, then that's a weakness. Like that means that the bus count is is one, right? The bus count is very low, and it means that my like I think that if if a community is dependent on one person and only one person can run that community, that's a very vulnerable community. So by being able to pass the baby around and being able to um, share responsibilities, I think we're strengthening the the community and we're making it even more sustainable. So um, I don't feel that way. I feel very comfortable. You know, I think that trust has to be earned, of course, like I'm not going to give it up to anybody. Um, but I think that assuming you have the right person in place, right people in place. I'm very, very open and I'm very excited to give people the opportunity to strengthen the community. That is very true. That is very true. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I'd like to go back to tech a bit. Um, sure. you've, been, you've been in this in this podcast creation for a while. How did you manage to, to keep in touch with tech and stay in tech and continue coding um, up to now where you maybe have um, more time and you can code again a bit more? How, how did that go? That's a great question. Yeah, that's been the hardest and most frustrating part I think in doing this is because most of the community work does not happen on the command line. You know, most of the community work happens in Twitter, in emails, in DMs. Um, so you really have to make time for coding if that's something that you want to do. So for me, it's been really hard to work that in on a regular basis. So I'm able to squeeze some coding time in. For example, I do um, the the Codeland website. Like I made that with uh, with Middleman. So I get to, you know, I get to code whenever I get to update the website. Um, for the Code Newbie website itself, that's, that, you know, that's, that's a Rails app. So I'm able to build some functionality, mostly internal tools with that one. Um, now that I have, you know, a little team going on, I'm able to free up more of my time to build um, and, and to code, you know, a, a build an actual product. So I think we're moving in the direction where I get to integrate code more into my, maybe not my daily schedule, but my weekly schedule. But for the last, you know, two years that I've been doing this full time, frankly, there hasn't been that much of a reason to code regularly. And so it's been pretty hard to fit that in. So, you know, what I try and do is by virtue of running the community, I try to at least keep up, you know, I try to at least keep up to date with news and different information that's going on and making sure I know who, um, you know, who the, the, 
uh, leaders are in our industry and try to keep up with new upgrades. So I try and, you know, keep my nose to the ground um, and kind of keeping up with the the news of things. But being able to actually code has been tough. Okay. Did you did you have a hard time coming back to coding after that? No, not really. I mean, the good thing about building your own apps is you know exactly what you're doing most of the time. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's been relatively easy for me to like pick up where I've left off and just add more stuff, you know, and add more features. I think it'd be very hard for me to get a developer job now. I think that if I were to interview for um, an, an actual role at someone else's company, I would probably need to spend a month or so brushing up and leveling up and getting to a place where I could interview. But the stuff that I'm building, frankly, isn't really that complicated. So coding for me is still really easy, but coding for someone else, I would need some time to prepare. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, would you mind telling us a bit more about Codeland? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So we have Codeland, which is our annual conference. We've been doing it for two years so far. So this is year three. And it is all about celebrating the power of code. So it's all about getting excited about what you can do with code and um, just really celebrating the application of it. I think that a lot of tech conferences focus on the technology and they focus on the tools, whereas we focus on, well, who uses the tools and where does it get used and what are the benefits and what are the side effects? So we really focus on the, the way code is being applied. And so I'm really pumped about it. It's a one-day conference. It's a mix of talks and workshops. And we have folks from literally all over the world who are, who are speaking, who are coming out to give a really great show. And for us, this year is really special because we've graduated from our Microsoft venue. We were hosted by Microsoft for the first two years. And now we've graduated to um, to Skirball, which is this beautiful theater in New York City. And we have, you know, before traditionally we've had 300 people attend. Now we're going to have 700 this year, which is very exciting. Um, so we're, we're growing up and we're doing some really fun stuff. And I'm, I'm really excited to have it. Wow, that sounds awesome. And I, I really like the tagline, celebrating the power of code. This is this is really great yeah. stuff. It's the first time I hear yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, I think so too because you know what what we found out is that for new people who are just entering tech, it's not they're not yet excited about the tools. They're excited about the potential of the tools. And a lot of conferences just don't they don't really focus on it. But there might be a one or two um, talks in a conference that does touch on it, that do touch on it. But overall, that's not the focus. And so for our community of new developers, people who are coding for less than two years, it really makes sense for them to have a conference of their own that's focused almost entirely on getting excited about code. Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, um, examples on top of your mind from talks that really went in the, into this direction? Yeah. Absolutely. So there's one talk that I love um, that's called uh, Diagnosing Depression. And so there's a woman who I think now she's a data scientist. But when she spoke at uh, at Codeland uh, two years ago, she was a student. She's a graduate student. And she did a lot of research on how to diagnose depression and how to train um, a, a piece of software she wrote on uh, to look at facial cues and being able to diagnose depression that way. And so she gave this beautiful talk um, about how passionate she is about mental health and how she's using these tools, these open source tools to build this, uh, this solution for future patients. So that to me is a great example of like, this is what you can do with code. You know, if you know, and for her, she doesn't think of herself as a programmer because she's not trained as a programmer, but she was trained as a scientist, as a, as a data student, a data scientist, and she had to learn how to code 
in order to create the solution. And so those are the stories that we're most excited about. How did learning to code enhance um, what you're what you're trying to do and the goals you're trying to reach? Mm-hmm. Do you or did, did you have a look at the backgrounds of the speakers you you chose for those uh, for those events? Did you find um, a trend in there? Uh, no. So we, we specifically don't want trends. <laughs> um, so, so for us, right, we want to show that coding is for anyone and everyone. We want to show that coding is, you know, doable if you want to learn how to code. You know, our whole thing is not everyone needs to learn how to code. I don't think that everyone necessarily should learn how to code, but if you want to, you should, you know, you shouldn't self-select out because you think it's too hard or you think it's not for you. And so we don't want any trends. We want to have a speaker lineup that comes uh, of people who come from all different backgrounds backgrounds all over the world. So we try to, you know, make sure that our pipeline for our CFPs is really diverse. It's really inclusive. And in selecting the final lineup, um, that reflects the type of community that we have where it's kind of almost, uh, I want to say almost like naturally inclusive and naturally diverse. And so, um, yeah, we have folks who have computer science degrees, folks who don't have computer science degrees, people from different parts of the world, people who are, you know, different genders, ethnicity. So we have folks who got into coding from very different places. That is absolutely awesome. Congratulations for this. Mm, thank you. Yeah. And we're excited to have it again this year on July 22nd in New York City. So if you're around, if you're interested, hope you get your tickets and hope to see you there. <laughs> I will certainly add it to the show notes and, uh, and people can uh, can have a look and, and, mm-hmm. and see if there's still some tickets available. But if you're if you're intending to grow 700 people, well, that might be short. That might be just short. Mm-hmm, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have uh, plans for for Coland to uh, for the future that you want to reveal here? Uh, no, not really. The main thing is you know, trying to take it one year at a time and really focusing on the conference um, and focusing on this year's conference. So no, we're just trying to make sure we have a we provide as great an experience as we can for folks who attend. <laughs> Damn, no uh no real thing to uh, to highlight on the podcast, me. Yeah, okay. not really. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's quite all right. That's quite all right. Okay. Um if you were to uh to give yourself um your former self an advice, may- maybe your former self before you started in tech w- when you were still in journalism. Um what would you give yourself? I would say to do things one at a time. I think that one of my biggest weaknesses is I get very, very impatient. And I think impatience generally is a good thing. I think that it, you know, I think that having a little bit of pressure can be, uh, can do wonders for your productivity and your, um, just your, your progress in general. But I think I'm a little too impatient. And I think that when I want something, I want it now and I want everything to happen at the same time. And one thing that I've been doing a much better job at this year is just trying to focus on doing one complete task. And then only when that task is over, do I start the next thing? And I wish I learned that lesson, you know, 10 years ago, because it would have, it would have helped me out a lot. Mm -hmm. How do you discipline yourself to uh, stick at it? The pain of it, of it not working before. (laughs) So what I've learned is, um, I learn from pain very, you know, it's a very effective way for me to learn my lesson. So looking back and just being really frustrated that I'm not where I want to be and that I didn't reach my goals in the past and being very honest about why that was and realizing that a lack of patience was a huge part of why I was frustrated with myself. Um, so I think the pain of failure is what made me go, okay, you have to do things differently. Otherwise, what are we doing here? You know, um, so that's been a, a really big motivator for me. 
Mm -hmm. Do you set yourself goals or short-term goals and, and go from one to the next or how, do, how does, does it look like? I try to. So one of, one of the things about uh, doing things one at a time is you only have one goal at a time, right? So for example, when I was hiring my social community manager, uh, social media community manager, my goal was to hire that person. And all other projects were put on hold until that person was onboarded. Now that person was onboarded, my next job was to hire a producer. And I wasn't allowed to do anything until that producer was hired. Now the producer is hired, now I have to figure out what my next goal is. So one of the benefits of doing things one at a time is, yes, you should have, you know, by the end of the year, you should have a list of all the things you want to do. But taking it one step at a time, one goal at a time allows you to really focus and I think do a much more thorough job and, and do it more efficiently than trying to juggle multiple goals, goals at the same time. Uh, have you had one of those goals um, failing between and you have to drop it? Sort of. So things have not so much failed, but taken longer. So uh, to give you an example, I my goal with sponsorships, right, for Codeland sponsorships, one of my goals was to finish, uh, to have commitments for sponsorships by the end of April, by the end of this month, or actually not even the end of the month, by middle of this month. And right now, as, at the time of this recording, we're on April 18. Um, one thing that I didn't anticipate was that people take a long time to get back to you. So even though I, you know, I did a pretty good job of reaching out to people in a timely fashion, it just takes a while for them to respond and it has to go through different teams and it has to get approved. So I'm a little behind on my, I'm like two weeks behind on my goal for sponsorship because it's just been dragging on for longer than I anticipated. Um, and that kind of messes things up a little bit because I don't want to start on my next task until this one's complete, but I might have to because I don't know how long this one is going to take to complete. So I think estimating time is generally a hard thing, whether you're coding or managing a project or managing your personal life, you know, I think that time management is always tough. So I've had things linger on for longer um, and, and tend to kind of bleed into other things that I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that would ex exactly be uh, my next question. Um, if that were to happen, how do you think you will, you will uh, balance the two, uh, the two parallel tasks? I think that it is important to focus, to, to, block off big chunks of time on the new goal. So for me, if I don't have at least three, four hours at a time to focus on the new goal, then it's not worth really starting. Because what will happen is I'll do an hour here, an hour there. It's not really done well. It's kind of done sloppily, especially if it involves people outside of me. So if it involves, um, for example, interviewing people um, and it takes me a while to get back to them because I'm distracted. It, it means that I'm going to do that job poorly. So my, my general goal is to not start on a new task until I can dedicate at least three, four hours a day to that task. If I feel like I can, then I'm okay doing both goals at the same time, but definitely not more than two goals. I think any more, for me at least, any more than two goals is just waiting for a catastrophe to happen. Um, so that's how I decided. I decide to only move forward if I have nice big chunks of time available. Mm -hmm. and, and goals are um, um, which timeline for you? Is, is it a, a week, a month, um, a few months? Usually how? it's between, yeah, usually it's between like two weeks and a month. Um, ideally, mm -hmm. it doesn't take more than a month at a time. And if it does, it, it's probably a good idea to break it up. Um, but yeah, generally a couple of weeks to a month. That's awesome that you uh, realized this for yourself and, and found a way to make it a real happen. Yeah, it took a while. <laughs> it took a long time to get to this point, but finally, finally getting there.
Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, unfortunately, we're slowly reaching the end of the time box. Um, I would like to make sure that people know where they can um, reach out to you and continue the discussion. So where where would that be? Sure. For me personally, it's my, uh, my Twitter is probably the best way to reach me. My Twitter is just my first name, last name. So S-A-R-O-N-Y-I-T-B-A-R-E-K. And if you want to connect with me via Code Newbie, then the Twitter handle for that is Code Newbies, C-O-D-E-N-E-W-B-I-E-S. Mm-hmm. And where would be the, f- the, the best way to, to get um, into the Code Newbie community? Probably on Twitter. We, have, we do our Twitter chats um, on Twitter, like directly on Twitter if you search the hashtag Code Newbie. And then we also have our podcast. So wherever you listen to this podcast, we're probably on that um, that platform as well. So do a search for Code Newbie podcast and for Base CS podcast, B-A-S-E-C-S podcast. Um, and you can get started listening to one of our over 200 shows now. We've done 200, over 200 episodes of the Code Newbie podcast. So uh, we've covered a bunch of different topics, had a bunch of different guests on. So hopefully there is one for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe uh, a few words on this. So the Code Newbie um, is very much um, like um, Developer's Journey. Or actually, Developer's Journey is very much like uh, Code Newbie. I must say, you were you were there way before me. Um, um, but would you mind t- saying a couple words about Base CS because it's a very different show. Yeah, absolutely. So Base CS is a show that's produced by myself and my co-host Vaidehi Joshi. And the idea came from actually Vaidehi's personal story of wanting to learn computer science, but not having a computer science degree. And so she spent a year teaching herself computer science and writing a blog post every single week. And I saw that and I thought, ooh, that would be a really great podcast. And so we have a 20, roughly 20 minute show where I'm the student, she's the teacher, and she's teaching me computer science topics topics in short little episodes. So it is much more technical and it is designed to teach you computer science um, either if you're a student and you're learning it in school or more likely if you're an engineer and maybe you just never learned computer science as a, you know, as a discipline. So um, it's a really great show to level up and it's really fun and accessible. We make a ton of stupid jokes and a lot of puns. Um, So it's a really fun show to do. And I think it's, you know, a good balance of being entertaining and educational. Yes, I can relate to all of this. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so beside Codeland, where could people um, see you in real life, if I may say, um, next? Do you have some talks coming up? Do you have uh, some conferences where you'll be at? Uh, sort of. So I will definitely be in... Um Thailand, if anyone's uh, going to Thailand, I'm going to be speaking at um, a Ruby conference there. And actually, I think that might be my only one for this year. I think that's the only one I have left is my Thailand conference. So if you're if you're in that area, um, come on and stop by. <laughs> or Colin in um, July. Or Colin, there you go. I can't believe I missed that. I missed that opportunity. Yes, you can see me at Copen. I will be there too. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Um, did we forget to talk about anything? Do you have something do you, you want to shout out before before we, uh, we leave off? No, I think that's pretty good. We covered a, covered a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. Thank you very much. That has been a thrill then. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And this has been another episode of Developer's Journey. And we'll see each other in two weeks. Bye-bye. Dear listener, if you haven't subscribed yet, 
You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and much more. Head over to www.devjourney.info to read the show notes, find all the links mentioned during the episode, and of course, links to the podcast on all those platforms. Don't miss the next Developer's Journey story by subscribing to the podcast with the app of your choice right now. And if you like what we do, please rate the podcast, write a comment on those platforms, and promote the podcast on social media. This really helps fellow developers discover the podcast and those fantastic journeys. Thank you.